first of all, thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me. Um, so if you can, in the most basic term, just kind of explain what, what Bitcoin is and what the goal of it is. Well, essentially, you have to just ask the question, what is money? And the basic terms, money is the ability for people to exchange time and energy at a future moment in time. And so the problem with barter, everyone's like, oh, why don't we just go to a barter system? What people don't understand is the barter, there's a limitation of, it's the circumstance of coincidence is what it's called. And it's the circumstance where, do you want something that I want? And we also want to trade at the same time for the same thing. And if we don't, then what? Yeah. So a creation of a medium of exchange comes in where this is what money is, this is what currency is. It was beads, it was ledgers, it was coins, it's paper now. It's not even paper anymore, it's mostly digital. Yeah. And so that exchange, that tool, that invention was to be able to exchange our time and energy at a future time. And so what Satoshi did and what Bitcoin attempts to do is create a monetary system that is completely transparent and you can trace and track all the units of account within the system without having to trust a third party, sure. like a bank or yeah. a government, which is the role that banks and governments play is because you know, we have such a large society now that in order to co coordinate and collaborate with each other, we need some kind of institution in order to cooperate. And so now computer networks are taking that role. And computer networks are much more transparent, there's open source software, there's open source development, is you know decentralized networks and so now we have these networks that can take the place of these governments which are often corruptible and dishonest and exploitive and so satoshi created this system and if you read the white paper it's a pretty quick read have you read it i haven't read it it's a pretty quick read it's not too technical but he lays it out fairly fairly easily with he consistently goes back to referencing trusted third parties and that's kind of the key. Um, it's kind of the, the key focus of his of the white papers. Well, so that's that's the basis of it. You have any number of computers connected to the network, mm -hmm. and they're all checking each other constantly, right? And verifying where where those coins uh, reside and and, yeah. and under whose account they they are in, right? Yeah, the the accounts are a random string of numbers. There's no names connected to them. There's no IPs connected to them. You could potentially track an IP, but there's no IP is not moved with the transactions. And so what it's essentially doing is creating a system where everyone who's participating in it can coordinate together as quickly as possible in a universal sense. And so when a miner, we'll get into that, but the miners who mine Bitcoin and blocks release a block to the network Everyone hears about it at the same time as quickly as possible, and they all can, can see or bring, come to consensus that okay, we're all on the same page. Everything's legit. All the transactions are legit. The rules are still intact. Let's move forward. Mm -hmm. And that happens every ten minutes. And so, to think about it on a broad term is just these systems, government as well, and banking is just ways to coordinate large amounts of people together in a way to cooperate and build societies. Yeah, like you said, it's a way. It's a way to pay for a good or a service. It, I mean, in line with if I make shoes and you need a shoe, mm -hmm. I make you a shoe. You have to trade me a goat or whatever. Yeah. Like, if you don't want goats, yeah, then we use money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we we begin using money. Mm -hmm. We've reached this point where 
I mean, I think everybody would agree the reason it's so impressive and has so much potential is because it doesn't rely on any third party. Mm -hmm. It's just user to user based on this network of computers. So you don't have uh, Bank of America or Chase or whoever Mm -hmm. charging you a $40 overdraft fee. Mm -hmm. You, You own a portion of a coin or the coin and you give it to someone else for whatever that value is. Yep. Yeah. And you also don't have a Federal Reserve or a central bank that can, on a whim, print $6 trillion more dollars like you know happened less last year. Exactly. And so this, the, the, the idea of a set monetary base, which is Bitcoin, it's 21 million is the limit. Every 10 minutes, a new amount of coins is released. Every four years, that amount is halved. And so start out with 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoiners released in each block. The miners get that. After four years, it went down to 25 Bitcoin. And then it halves every four years after that. We just had one recently a year ago, and now it's six and a quarter Bitcoin Mm -hmm. every 10 minutes. And so that predictable monetary um, cycle and that is essentially the antithesis of what we have now, where it's just interest rates are changed whenever, inflation is changed whenever, the way they... uh, the way they gauge inflation and the way they measure it is just not even really legit. Well, it's based on debt too. Yeah. The, I mean, fractional, fractional reserve. Yeah. The, there's some interesting quote. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but if everyone paid back all their debts, there would be no money because that's all it is. It's well, debt. Yeah, the debt is outpaced the amount of money because every time money is lent out, it comes with a debt initially on it because yeah. it's all – from a private bank, essentially, central yeah. bank. So. Yeah, it's not a good system. And um, that's what's so exciting about what's happening with Bitcoin mm-hmm. and why I believe you hear so much negative press about it because the people who are in charge who own, you know, are, are responsible for trillions of U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. they don't have a vested interest in Bitcoin because they can't control it. Yeah. And so when you have when you have a currency that how many are there right now 18 million bitcoin yeah yeah uh, 18 million so 18, yeah. the the last 3 million will be mined by 2140 is that right yeah the last whole bitcoin will be mined in 2034 2034 then after that it'll be fractions of a bitcoin all the way until 21 because it keeps getting halved yep. yeah so you have a finite amount of this premium currency mm-hmm. which right now i don't even know how many trillions of dollars are well, yeah there's no way to know how much money is actually out there yeah because i think the the national debt is like 23 trillion yeah but the thing is no one has ever audited the fed ledger like if you remember back in 2008 the ron paul presidential campaign his his he ran on the idea let's audit the fed let's see you know if their books match what we actually know to be going on with the money system and it never happened yeah and so bitcoin is kind of evolved into this thing of not let's not all the fed let's just make them obsolete and offer a better system which is what's happening yeah yeah so you have this this uh this currency where there exists 18 million right now and 2013 it was created 2008 2008 yeah and for a very long time they were a cent a coin or less than a cent not even yeah 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 2009, the network started, late 2008 was when the white paper was released. And so 
pretty much the paper that describes the network and how it works. It was released in October 2008, and in January 2009, the first block was mined, and which is known as the Genesis block. But I would encourage everyone to read the Bitcoin white paper just because it's fairly easy to follow, and it explains a lot about what's really the intention of it. And so in all this time that you're talking with people, what, what is like the general misconception or what, what do you have to like constantly explain to people? One of the major ones is that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Yeah. This one Bitcoin is 100 million units of account. And the smallest unit of account is known as a Satoshi, which is named after the creator. And so one Bitcoin is actually 100 million Satoshis. So like, you know, one dollar is 100 pennies. Same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so people look at one Bitcoin, they're like, oh, I can never afford one Bitcoin. It's too much. It's too late. Yeah. But you can buy, you know, a dollar worth of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Another thing is, um, I mean, this, it's not a whole lot of misconception because it's mostly just confusion and people almost intimidated or they just want to know more and ask questions. And so there's not a whole lot of misconceptions. Now there is with the whole energy thing and then mm-hmm. stuff like that. And maybe like, oh, it's only used for crime and all that. Yeah. But mostly those things. The biggest one, yeah, is like you, you don't have to own a whole Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, owning a whole one, where is it at? 30? It's at 40, I think. Yeah, 40,000. 40. Yeah. And it peaked at 64. Yeah. Somewhere around there. there. Yeah. So... I, I hear that from a lot of people too, where they just feel like they missed the boat mm-hmm. and it's hard to explain where the boat's at when we don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. But it seems like it can only go higher when we know how many there are. Mm-hmm. You can't create more. I mean, if it becomes the main cryptocurrency of choice or the mm-hmm. most powerful or most valuable, how high do you think it could go? Based on demand, I mean, it could go potentially infinitely high. Because <laughs> there's a, let's say how much dollars are out there. And then you kind of divide it by 21 million. Mm-hmm. I mean, even early on, some of the, some of the people working on it, one of them uh, in specific, Hal Finney, who is, you know, a cryptographer, a well-known cryptographer. And a lot of the people who, even Bitcoin in general as a cryptocurrency, it's a concept that has been around since the late 80s, early 90s, even before that, um, David Chom, a lot of cryptographers are working on this idea of electronic money where you don't have to trust third parties. And the problem was that in computers, you can duplicate data. You, know, you can duplicate a PDF, anything. And so the problem was being able to create this scarce digital asset. And the way that happened was through what, I mean, it, it, there was a few people that tried it beforehand but failed, but Satoshi really brought it all together and was able to solve what's known as a double spend problem and essentially describes not being able to duplicate a piece of digital data without people knowing it. And that's all solved with mining and proof of work and all that, but that's a whole other rabbit hole. But in terms of Hal Finney, he was you know, kind of theorizing that it could be easily millions of dollars for one Bitcoin one day just because of how scarce it is and how much demand there is. Because, I mean, gold... Is a, is a good way to equate it to, but gold is kind of useless in the digital world. You can't send it digitally. It's very hard to move. It's hard to verify. You need a spectrometer to analyze it. And there's also a lot of paper gold being traded. And so people don't really know 
when you buy gold, you're not really holding gold. You're holding like a paper representation of gold. Some people hold gold, but with Bitcoin, it's much easier to take delivery of the asset because it's just a simple transaction. You can buy gold and get a piece of paper? Yeah, you could buy you know a stock of gold or investment in a mining company or just like a gold bond or something. So then there's some bank somewhere that's actually holding the physical supposedly, gold? Supposedly, yeah. Huh. And it's hard to audit, you know, but with Bitcoin, you can take delivery of that Bitcoin within 10 minutes. Yeah. A Bitcoin transaction could send instantly and gets confirmed in 10 minutes. So. Yes. Well, that's the, that's the other positive thing too is, right, um, trying to send, you know, like if you had a thousand U.S. dollars and you're trying to buy something in Europe in euros, mm-hmm. I mean, that transaction can take anywhere from what, a couple days to a week? Yeah, and then pay all the conversion fees. and Yeah, and with Bitcoin, I mean, it's not instantaneous, but it's much faster. Yeah, you can pretty you can make pretty sure that it's going to – it's legit. I mean, and even if I sent you a Bitcoin and it wasn't confirmed yet, you could take that transaction and send it to yourself with a higher fee and it will confirm instantly. So mm-hmm. you, it's actually in your power at that moment – to settle that transaction faster if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so you're not relying on the person who sent it. Because the theory is that I can send you a Bitcoin transaction, and then if I put a low fee, I could overwrite that transaction for the higher fee and send it to a different address, and then you like, oh, it's not here. But you can also do that too, and so you can actually circumvent any kind of double. How, how do you impose a fee on the transaction? Well, the fees are paid to miners. Okay. So that's the incentive for the miners to offer the processing power to secure the network and get rewarded in Bitcoin. But if I have Bitcoin now, I didn't mine it. I can still charge a miner fee if I sold it to you? Well, the miner fees are inherent in the system, and so they always go to the miners. Okay. And so you can choose the fee. You can choose a low fee. It'll take a little longer to confirm. And it's based on how much traffic is happening on the network. Okay. And so if there's not much happening and you want to send it, it can be super cheap if there's a lot, like couple months ago when the price was really going crazy yeah fees were like 20 bucks but it's all measured in bitcoin and so and every crypto all fees are measured in the asset even like ethereum fees were like 40 50 dollars so if the price of the asset goes up the fees are going to go up as well Mm -hmm. but the theory is that after the mining rewards are done the miners still need an incentive to run their Mm -hmm. machines and so these fees are going to be that incentive okay okay, so uh, there's a bunch of uh, mining operations, you know, large-scale operations like in China. And so it's essentially like a warehouse full of computers, right? Yeah, they're known as ASICs, which is Application-Specific Integrated Circuit. So they're uh-huh. built specifically to crunch the specific algorithm that Bitcoin runs on. And China is actually cracking down on a lot of the mining. And so a lot of it's leaving China. A lot of it has been leaving for a while just because... With Bitcoin mining, it incentivizes efficiency. And so there's a lot of places in Washington and even uh, the Southwest and where there's, and even Canada, where there's a lot of oil drilling and they have to flare out this methane gas from the oil drilling. And usually methane, you know, they have nothing to do with it. It's just like an excess. They can't really capture it and they get, they get, you know, penalized for venting it. And so what they do instead, this company, um, Upstream Data, invented these pretty much like shipping containers. You pipe the methane in, it runs an engine, and then that engine powers Bitcoin miners. Hmm. And so it's burning that gas into CO2, which is less harmful for the environment than methane. And so it's creating 
it's taking this wasted energy and using it for the Bitcoin network. And so gotcha. the most efficient you can be with finding your energy, the better. And so Bitcoin actually incentivizes efficient energy production. Well, yeah. Why, why does it require so much energy to do the calculation to find the coin? It doesn't require it. It's just the incentive. So the more demand there is an incentive for, for people to want Bitcoin, the more energy miners put into it. Okay. Like the network could run just as well with half the energy that it's using right now. There's no intrinsic need for that much energy. But the more energy that there is, the more secure it is also. Because and if you wanted to take over the network, you would have to surmount that amount of energy that's uh-huh. there. Okay. Yeah, because I one day I went down a rabbit hole and I was like, I'm going to get into it. I'll, I'll get one of those ASIC computers or yeah. boxes, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading more about it. And it's like your one box versus the thousand in a warehouse in China your one box can't compete with them because they have so much more processing power. They will find the code quicker? Yeah. I mean, people, what they do now is what, it's called pool mining. And so you and essentially, maybe let's say there's a thousand other people who have one ASIC miner come together mm-hmm. and mine together. And therefore, it creates more power and you get a small amount of what you offer. And so mining pools is kind of what is the predominant way of mining these days. Mm-hmm. But your machine has to be the one to crack that code and find that portion of the coin. Yeah, but all the machines can work together. So you can, if just through the internet, you can link up a thousand machines that are all over the world and they gotcha. can work together. And then when, the, when the working together finds a block, they split it up between how many people are helping. So what if I hacked into one of those supercomputer things in, in China in the warehouse and I just was like latching on and taking some of it? They'd probably know because <laughs> you'd have to send it to a new address. Or, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So that's the cool thing about it. Like it's all it's all traceable in one way or another, but it's also not because it's not associated with you. Like it doesn't get added to your social security number or your your state ID or whatever. And then recently, um, they with the whole uh uh, there was some sort of ransom that happened mm-hmm. with the gas line on the East Coast. Yeah. And whoever did that wanted to be paid in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? And so they asked for... It's like $7 million or something. Something like that. Yeah. And they were paid. And then somehow the, the federal government discovered where it was and, and took it back. Yeah, they, it's, they haven't really said how they found it, but people have a lot of theories. Essentially, they issued a subpoena to some server in Northern California and the Bitcoin are being held on that server. And so they found out that was on there and issued a subpoena in the U.S. And so whoever these hackers were, either were not very good or they were wanting to get caught or something like that because, I mean, when you, if you're hacking, you know, a major corporation and they pay the ransom and then you put it on a random server in Northern California... It's not wise. I mean, a Bitcoin wallet, you don't have to have on a server. You can have it on a USB stick. You can have it mm-hmm. in your head, you know. And so there was like people were thinking like, oh, the FBI broke Bitcoin security and all that. But if Bitcoin security were to be broken, like the, encrypt- or the algorithms or the um, encryption, it would break pretty much all encryption that's being used in the world. I mean, SHA-256 is a standard that is used in many Aspects of modern banking, military, government. Shot 56? Shot 256. So it's a hash algorithm, and it's just a way to essentially verify that a certain calculation has been done. Okay. And so if if I want to send you a file, and then you want to confirm that it was the real file and no one in between modified it, 
I could send you the hash, soft two physics hash of it, and you could check it yourself against that file. Gotcha. And so that's essentially what miners are doing, where you could check this algorithm and verify that this block was mined with this much energy. Is that what can be meant by when they say end-to-end encryption? No, that's a bit different. This is just kind of like brute force in terms of energy and numbers. Okay. So it's like a math problem with a certain amount of integers, and we know that if it has this many integers, it takes this much energy to compute. Okay. And so that's how you keep the network moving forward because we know that there's this much hash power being used to create to solve this this complex little problem. Okay. So you, uh, what 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 inspired you to get into this? You know, I was inspired by. I mean, I was mentioned before about Ron Paul and his and the Fed camp or audit the Fed campaign in 2008, and he had a big following in the media. You know, like usual, kind of downplays it and downplays the the populist front runner. And then when I learned about it, I had kind of heard about it in passing. And kind of, you know, waved it off and like, oh, this sounds kind of like a gimmick or like a scam. And then I came back around about a year later and read the white paper. And then it clicked and I was like, oh, this is this is like BitTorrent. I don't know if you're familiar with BitTorrent. Yeah. It's the like file sharing. File sharing, yeah. yeah. Similar to like Napster. Yeah. So the Napster happened and they were able to shut down Napster because it was centralized service. And so people invented this thing called BitTorrent where everyone holds a piece of a file and you can download it from everywhere. And so I read the white paper of Bitcoin. I was like, okay, this is like money, but or BitTorrent for money. And it clicked instantly. And then the next day I was just in the rabbit hole and I bought some Bitcoin. How did you buy it? I met a guy in a parking lot. And <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, there was a site called lo- <laughs> localbitcoins.com. And wow. you were able to just meet up you know, with people. And huh. yeah, I had a flip phone at the time. And I was like, all right, I guess I got to get a smartphone now. Cause <laughs> Did he hand you a, a physical USB stick? No, I had the picture of my QR code on my flip phone and showed it to him. He scanned it. And I couldn't even confirm. I had to rush home, check Holy my note shit. on my home computer. Because, you know, to have an actual Bitcoin wallet, you need a smartphone. Like, yeah. But, yeah, I still had a flip phone back then. And so, yeah, it was just... Did you give him cash? Yeah. Yeah. Just some random guy in a parking lot. <laughs> That's so crazy. Wow. But he was honest, you know, he didn't screw me over or anything. And he was just, he wasn't even, he was just like, yeah, I'm into arbitrage. I, you know, buy and trade currencies. And he mm-hmm. wasn't like a hardcore, you know, hacker or anything. He was just interested in flipping currencies. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin was part of it. So it was your goal at that point just to dive into this alternate thing because you thought it could become something? Yeah, essentially I thought, all right. This system of like mathematics and cryptography and open source hardware, I trust way more than I trust the traditional financial system. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, closed off, completely blacked out. You know, meetings in small rooms with with heads of state who just make up monetary policy without, you know, really asking anyone. And so, I just had more faith in that system, the cryptography and mathematics, than I do in how it's still being run to this day. Mm-hmm. And this was right after 2008, 2009 financial crisis. So yeah. It was very apparent and you know, no, one, no bankers went to jail. And it was a travesty of what happened. In terms it got of, pretty wonky. Yeah. And it's kind of... it's happening again. Yeah, it's going that direction right now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's nothing new. All throughout history, these have, this has played out. The, the idea of inflation and printing money to try and 
you know, spur the economy is nothing new. It's kind of an old trick. It's what brought down, you know, Rome and many other ancient civilizations. Well, also, um, post World War One Germany. Yeah, the Weimar Republic. Yeah. yeah. The uh, I forget what the currency was, but um, they were printing so much. If I remember correctly, it's because after the Treaty of Versailles, they owed a ridiculous amount of money that they could never pay. Mm -hmm. The equivalent of like one bazillion, jillion, million dollars. You know, it's like they're never going to pay that. Mm -hmm. And so if I remember correctly, they they just – They tried to print it. They tried to print it. And Mm -hmm. then people are like – bringing wheelbarrows mm. full of money to buy like a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, similar thing happened in Venezuela recently where it was just the money became so abundant that it, they had to like truck in dumpsters and it was just, you know, wheelbarrow in and it became useless because it's just, you can't deal with that much physical mass in order to like... No, it's know. stupid. You got mm-hmm. like a house full of paper money mm-hmm. to... People started making like uh, arts and crafts and like bags and purses out of it. They would just like do like folding it to origami and make like a purse and sell it on the street because it was more useful than an actual <laughs> yeah, doll. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, we're not far from that. Um, how old are you? 36. 36 yeah. and 37. Okay. So, I mean, our entire lives and our parents and our grandparents and even probably even our great-grandparents, uh, that entire stretch of time the U.S. dollar has always been, by world standards, mm-hmm. the most solid. Yeah. And the thing that if countries could, they would prefer to own that to trade with. Yeah. And so we don't know anything different. But there, there's a real possibility that that is not the standard. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the world reserve currency usually lasts maybe like – I think the average was like 70, 80 years. And America became the world reserve after like – World War II, Bretton Woods, and so it became like the petrodollar where all oil would be, you know, traded in, in dollars. And so the reason that the U.S. dollar hasn't really suffered this super hyperinflation is because everyone still wants it. And so we can print a bunch and then export it all over the world. Whereas if you have a currency like Venezuela, you can print a bunch, but no one else wants it. And so you have all this massive currency within the country mm-hmm. that no one wants outside the country. So with the U.S. dollar, a lot of people still want it outside the country. So it kind of spreads out the inflation. But it's getting to the point now where it's catching up, you know, mm-hmm. because the price of lumber is going up, price of steel, price of commodities and food and it's all going up. I mean, houses and college tuition have been going up much longer than that. Yeah. So now it's finally catching up with actual, like, you know, commodities and resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as I know, the only two that are – that are uh, that exchange at a higher rate is the pound from Great Britain mm-hmm. and then the euro. Yeah, I think there's a few other like the Swiss franc and a couple others, but yeah, for the most part, it's just a system. And now they're trying to like switch it. To, like China's been trying to do central bank digital currency in their own kind of knockoff, but it really doesn't offer any solution because it's going to be centralized. And the whole thing that separates Bitcoin from what we have now is that it's decentralized. Yeah, I saw something the other day where they were talking about the Fed was considering making a digital U.S. dollar. And I'm like, yeah, it defeats the entire purpose. Like, Yeah, it's already mostly digital. Like most of the dollars out there are not in cash. You know, yeah. They're all bank cards and debits and credit. So it's just kind of they're trying to piggyback off this new kind of trend 
and saying, oh, yeah, we're keeping up with it and we're going to make our own central bank digital currency, but it's going to be the same game just with a new you know, label on it, a new veneer. Yeah. There's nothing. The fundamental difference is that there is no trusted third party mm-hmm. with Bitcoin and some other cryptos, not very many. A lot of the others are not decentralized enough to the extent that Bitcoin is. And that's because it takes time for these networks, which are, they're more like protocols. And so like the way the internet works is TCP IP protocol. And that's been in the universal protocol since kind of the 80s or 70s. Since and so what, do you, can you explain that? Like, what does that mean? It's pretty much the backbone of how information is trans, transmitted bet- between computers on the internet. It's the way the packets are moved back and forth and every computer has to speak this language in order to talk to each other. And so Bitcoin is similar in that way where all the nodes are speaking the same language and these protocols gain popularity and gain momentum the longer they're around. And it's hard for new ones to overtake it because who's going to adopt a new set of rules? Even ones like that are more efficient, it's still hard to like get everyone to adopt this new set of rules because it's already kind of ingrained in the way networks are built. And so now it's happening with money and Bitcoin. And right now Bitcoin is still, people are like, oh, the Bitcoin's old technology is a new one coming out. But what people don't realize is like, these are not like websites. Like it's not like My, MySpace and Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. These are protocol networks. Yeah. And they become much more ingrained in the backbone and much more gain much more momentum the longer they're around and security. Uh-huh. And so a network, say like Bitcoin Plus comes out tomorrow and there's a hundred things that are better than Bitcoin. The fact that it's only been out a day doesn't prove anything about its security. Sure. It's just all theory. The fact that Bitcoin's been around eleven years proves that it's had that amount of time of just like trial by fire, you know? Well, it's it's also supply and demand, right? If I say that this cup is worth a million dollars, the only reason this is worth a million dollars is if somebody's willing to pay that. Yeah. Otherwise, it's worth, I mean, if you'll give me a dollar, it's worth a dollar, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of happened recently with Doge, right? Yeah. Because Doge was less than a penny here. I mean, it was like yeah. fractions of a penny mm-hmm. forever. And then sometime in like February or March, mm-hmm. it just started to explode. And then Elon starts tweeting about it. Yeah. And then it, it it just blew up. Yeah. So the only reason the only reason that it has any value is because people put money into it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was more mimetic value. And then, you know, people like Elon Musk were pushing in. So it had a lot of hype behind it. And I mean it happens like the dot com bubble kind of happened there where you know, all these random ideas and pets.com is like the most used example, but they get these huge valuations and they're just end up being worthless because there's really nothing there. And Dogecoin is the same way. I mean, people are, it's like worth $40 billion a network. And the, what people didn't know is that in the back end, no one was actually working on the software. Like you couldn't really <laughs> yeah. download a Dogecoin node and sync to the network. Like it was broken. And some Bitcoin devs had to go and actually help like work on it and like get the network to function properly. Well, they asked the creator, they're like, what What did you expect from this? And he's like, I don't know. I made it up in 20 minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a joke. Yeah. 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 One of the creators came to a Portland meetup once. Oh, really? He was just like, I want nothing to do with this. He had people emailing him like, you need to like do this. This is going to save the world. If you don't do this, you know, we're gonna, they're threatening him and like just all this crazy shit you would hear of like this weird internet story. Wow. happened to him he wouldn't even tell us his real name and then he never came <laughs> back again <laughs> it was just totally i hope he whim. didn't get whacked 
Hopefully not. Yeah. It was totally just a whim and a joke, and it just exploded. Yeah. And, but, yeah, the, the nuance that people don't realize is that these networks, again, are very they're very reliant on security and the, as how long they've been around to build that security. And like I said, a new network that comes out can have all the fancy, you know, bells and whistles, but it it hasn't had the time in order to show that it's secure and that it works. Mm-hmm. It's all theory until it actually has time on the boots on the ground. Well, what do you know about Ethereum? I know a little bit about it. I mean, I've used it and I understand what they're trying to do. And they're making trade-offs. And so the way you have to do with these networks is you either trade off scaling, so it'll allow more users, or security. And since these networks have to synchronize around the world continually in order to work, because they without that synchronicity and without that coordination, there's no consensus. You have to have that coordination in order to have consensus. And so either you forego the security for scalability, or you forego scalability for security. Bitcoin has made security as the optimal kind of path. And that's why people are like, oh, it's too expensive to use. Or it's, But really, it's not currently the moment meant to be like a day-to-day currency. Money doesn't become a currency first. It becomes an asset. It becomes a store of value, and then it becomes a currency. Yeah. And so Ethereum was trying to be essentially what they would call the world computer. So you can like run all these programs on, this, on, the blo- on their blockchain, and you can do all this stuff. And it works to some extent, but again, they're sacrificing security. And so there's far less nodes on the Ethereum network because it costs more resources to run a node. They're moving away from mining because there's, you know, they don't want to have so many resources. They're moving to something called proof of stake, yes, which is less secure because a big part of the security of what Bitcoin is is the the link that it has to the joules of electricity. So like mining is literally using using energy and you're connecting that. To, it's kind of like a bridge. You can think of it as a bridge between the digital world and the physical world okay. where we have electricity going in to the digital world. You can verify that this much electricity was needed to perform this problem, this proof of work problem. And so it's this level of objectivity where the digital world, you can't really prove that a file is legitimate or authentic. You have to just hope that it is. Mm-hmm. With proof of work, you can prove it. With proof of stake, it becomes more subjective because you don't have this link of energy that you can kind of verify. So yeah, proof of work, you're using energy to to crack the code and accumulate the coin. Proof yeah. of stake, you're verifying it with other people on the network? Using the coin itself to kind of create. So let's say I have 100 tokens of Ethereum. I could put those 100 up for stake, and then I have a chance of writing the block. Whereas with Bitcoin, you're not using tokens, you're using energy. Okay. So let's say I have 100 miners. I put that up to find blocks. And the reason that's more secure is because you can objectively verify that energy is being used. With proof of stake, you just have a token within the system that the system created the token. So there's nothing outside the system that can verify its legitimacy or authenticity. So are you basically loaning the coin to anyone? You're not loaning it. You're just putting it, it's kind of putting it up for a lotto. And so you have X amount of coins. If you have more, so if you have, you know, a million tokens, mm-hmm. you can have much more stake than someone who has 100. And therefore you're making more, because 
kind of like proof of work, they get fees and they also get rewards for staking. So you get you can make money just by having money. Yeah. So huh. the rich get richer is kind of the same concept of proof of stake. So that kind of seems like the opposite of what it's trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, they're making trade-offs because of scalability. And Bitcoin is scaling in a different way, like moving on layers of systems. And so the internet's kind of built in layers as well. Like I was saying, TCP, IP on the bottom. Then there's like HTTP. There's layers on top. So Bitcoin is scaling on top. So what's called Lightning Network is a kind of transactionary layer that's on top of Bitcoin. And so it's a way to move funds smaller amounts between people and it's functioning now and it's working and growing and it's a way to preserve the security while also allowing scalability because you're not changing the base layer you're building on top of it whereas some chains are trying to just build outwards well yeah that's the deal with ethereum right they're trying to change from proof of work to proof of stake and it's like super complicated to make that yeah that jump right Mm -hmm. while everything's still functioning yeah I mean, it's kind of like if you're driving a car down the road and you want to change, change the, the engine. engine. Yeah. It's like, how are we going to do that? Yeah. It's yeah. Tricky. Yeah. yeah. That's why it keeps getting delayed. And, you know, that's kind of people think that there will be a force split. So Ethereum will stay, one will proof of work, and another one will come with proof of stake because no one has to leave the proof of work and stop doing it. No one is forced to stop mining Ethereum when they release proof of stake. So, how many, I guess that's what I don't know. How many. There's only 21 million potential Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. How many Ethereum are there? There is no set limit, I don't think. There's around 100 million or so that are out right now uh-huh. of Ethereum, but they keep kind of changing the issuance. And so that's why people agree that it's not really as hard money as Bitcoin because they mess with the interest rates and the emission rate a lot. And now I mean, they're cutting it in June or in July. They're going to be cutting it by a huge percentage for some reason, they're trying to essentially disincentivize miners. So they're trying to make it harder for miners to exist in order to move to this proof of stake chain. Gotcha, because they want people to convert. Yeah, Yeah. so instead of paying miners these fees, they're gonna be burning the fees, like just burning it into nothing. And Uh so they're trying to disincentivize people from mining Ethereum, but I mean, the miners could just keep mining it and make what they make, and then proof of stake can go. And then in that case, you can use both chains. Mm-hmm. And the, you know it becomes a free market competition at that point. Yeah, I didn't pay much attention to it until recently. And the reason I started looking into it is because it seems like there's a lot of other coins that are like piggybacking on Ethereum. Bitcoin's kind of like its own thing. And similar, I think, to what you're saying about building different layers, Bitcoin's just Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But Ethereum, it's like there's all these other coins that are piggybacking on it, using the network somehow to like their core reason for existing is to make the transactions easier. Is that right? They're trying. People are trying to create systems on top of Ethereum. So like tokens, they're known as just Ethereum tokens, and you can just go on, use a smart contract, and create a billion of your own token. And so people have created their own tokens on Ethereum that do you know, specific things like um, there's one that's trying to do like a decentralized second life or uh, like a VR kind of world. And it's just the token is there to try to incentivize people to use a network and to like buy property within the network. And so they could just use Ethereum, but there's more incentive to create your own token because then you can create as many as you want. Yeah. 
like with these tokens or just generate millions of them. And, you know, you could hold a bunch and give them away. Yeah. So, well, there's a lot of video games where they want you to use their coin too yeah. because there's different ways to profit off of that, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah and they can create it at will, you know, at a whim and you get, they get their USD or whatever. Dude, it is the Wild West. That's what I tell everybody. I'm like, this is... This is like some 1849 gold rush level shit that's happening right now. Yeah. And that's why it's so exciting. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. But like I tell everybody, I'm like, don't put anything in that you're not willing to lose. Exactly. Because who knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But also. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it because mm-hmm. something's going to happen. Yeah. There's no way all of these different assets that have these insane $100 billion evaluations uh, are just going to disappear. They're, Most of them will, but there'll be some, a good handful that are very useful. Like Monero is probably the most used and most secure anonymous cryptocurrency. Yeah. My so, buddy, uh, Hargis, he was way into Monero. Yeah. And you want to explain why? Why he. Well, yeah, Monero builds on top of Bitcoin in the sense that you can't trace amounts or transactions through the network. So Bitcoin, you can trace the transactions, but you know it's just a bunch of numbers. And you can, with a lot of resources, attempt to find out who created those transactions and where they're going. And you know the FBI and the feds have tracked people down that way and arrested people that way. But in terms of Monero, is the network is built in such a way that it's all anonymous. It's completely anonymous. So pe- people might argue that that would make it easier to do illegal transactions and yeah. sell shit on the black market. Yeah, and right? it, it does. It does make it easier. Yeah. But again, you know, far more illegal transactions are done U.S. dollars than always have been. And like even banks who are like, you know, I think it was uh, HSBC or some bank was fined millions or billions of dollars for doing – for banking for drug cartels essentially. Uh-huh. Offering banking services to drug cartels, and so criminals are always going to use the tools that work best for them. Yeah, right. Like when cars were invented, a lot of criminals use cars to rob banks. Yeah. So the tools, again, are just tools, and the way they're used are. Well, and for all of existence, as soon as you made something illegal, it does. It's not like it goes away. Yeah. It just means that you've created a new. You create more demand for it. Exactly. I mean, the prohibition is the perfect example. Make alcohol illegal, and that's what started uh, Al Capone and all Mm -hmm. those hardcore gangsters that were selling all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like people stopped drinking for 13 years. Yeah. Same thing with cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. And I feel like that's – I mean, you've got China – uh, I don't know exactly what they said, but they're trying to ban crypto. They're trying to ban like mining that's not used, that's not being used with n- renewable energy. And oh, so, is that all? Yeah, it's hard to get clear news out of China, but they don't want their citizens using it because a lot of people use it for to get money out of the country. So there's a lot of like banking restrictions and currency control mm-hmm. that governments try to use to keep their citizens in the monetary system of that country and so bitcoin is used a lot to get money out of these countries i don't understand how you can ban a digital transaction though they can't ban it but they can go after people who like are caught and they actually just arrested like a couple thousand people who were doing you know 
illegal transactions by their books, and they you know delete a bunch of accounts on their social on like Weibo, which is like China's social media, big social media site, banned a bunch of like exchange accounts and and all that. And there's always they've been trying to like stop Bitcoin for years now, at least five years, and and. They're not going to succeed. And it doesn't make sense. It seems like they would find a way to exploit it and make money off of it. Like even do something similar to Tesla and invest, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say what they're really doing, but. Because the way it works is, like we said earlier, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. I mean, like basic economic thought if you buy into it it will push the price up and so i mean if your goal is to make money you would buy a bunch when it went up you would sell so i don't understand why i mean maybe they are and we just don't know it i understand why governments aren't investing well some are now if you heard el salvador the recent news out of el salvador i was just reading about that before you got here yeah they Passed a bill, made Bitcoin legal tender in their country where you can pay off debts with Bitcoin. And they've been using the U.S. dollar since their currency collapsed, I think, in 2001 or so. But now they're using Bitcoin and they also are getting into mining where they have these geothermal, they have you know a lot of volcanoes and they already use it for geothermal, pretty much drill a hole near the volcano. A lot of the gas starts escaping. They run generators on it and produce power and they produce a lot of power that way and now they're going to use it for Bitcoin mining, so... They'll be able to be able to generate their own Bitcoin through this renewable energy, and then just store the Bitcoin. And it becomes a game theory, game theoretical type event where these countries who are being, who have been getting exploited, you know, third world countries who have been exploited by first world countries, can now opt out and join to a system where the rules are open, the rules are set in stone. Essentially, they can't be manipulated, and they can, you know, start acquiring this asset that is valuable and that they don't have to have anyone's permission to acquire. Mm -hmm. The only downside to that though, and I don't know how legit this article is, it's from um, foreign policy. They're talking about how, I mean, they're trying to paint it in a, in a negative fashion. They're saying that um, Bitcoin will be legal tender, tender for all debts, including tax merchants must accept Bitcoin for goods and services unless they are technologically unable to. It said that um, basically, it says a quarter of Salvadorian Salvadoran citizens live in the United States. One quarter. Yeah, it's a whole lot of remittance that happens between. Yeah, so they've got twenty five percent of their population living in the United States making U.S. dollars, Mm -hmm. and according to this article, it says that then they have to send that money to their family in El Salvador, Mm -hmm. which it gets converted to Bitcoin. And then through partnership with a company called Strike, they convert it to Tethers, which, as far as I understand, is a way of making the, the coin stable. Right, because it yeah, Tether is like a U.S. dollar stable coin, is what they call it, and it's pretty much a token that exists on multiple different blockchains, mm-hmm. and it's run by a company. It's not decentralized. It's just a way to move dollars in a way that's not over like banking system, essentially. Okay, because yeah, the way when I was reading it, the way I was thinking of it in my mind is like you make a hundred dollars in the United States, you convert it to Bitcoin, 
then they convert that Bitcoin to tethers, which makes it stable because Bitcoin fluctuates so yeah. much. Converting it to tethers will keep it at a hundred dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then from there they can take it, and it said um, they uh, if they want it they have to convert it back to Bitcoin mm-hmm. and remove it from an ATM. Yeah. Which seems. Super fucking complicated. It is, yeah. So they got to work on that. But the thing that blew my mind is it said El Salvador runs on physical cash. 70% of the adult population don't even have a bank account. Yeah. Yeah, that's why they're using tethers because there really is no banking infrastructure in El Salvador to move USD around as well. So. And the, the infrastructure that is there costs a bunch of money to do remittance. So they take a huge amount of fees from anyone sending money in and out of El Salvador and so yeah so they're they're basically not keeping the country afloat but they're they're acquiring a significant amount of money taxing the money that their citizens make in the United States yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah they're just taking cuts off the top you yeah. know, like any organized So they they're kind of <laughs> they're kind of like uh, yeah, you guys want to go to the United States and make some money, send it back here. It's cool. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of wild. But, I mean, it is – I don't understand everything that's going on. I'm sure there's tons of stuff in the background that we don't get to hear about. But the fact that the president of a country has made a move mm-hmm. to make crypto uh, not the main currency but on par with – I think they still use the U.S. dollars. Yeah. can be like a joint thing. Yeah. The fact that somebody's doing that is like a huge step yeah. in the right direction because like we were talking about earlier, I think that's just where it goes. Yeah. It becomes a game theoretical you know, system at that point where other countries are now going to be incentivized to do the same thing. And it kind of has gone through the process of just being this kind of novelty that was almost a joke. And I mean, it has been a joke to a lot of people, but the people that understood it early on knew – implications and very much knew where it was going if it caught on and that's one of the reasons satoshi disappeared is because again this idea of digital money has been around for decades Mm -hmm. and it only was actualized with satoshi and then from there it just was it was too much of an upgrade in terms of how humans interact with money to not carry through and not continue to grow it's like you know with the internet and the postal service like, no matter how weird the internet was in the 80s and 90s, it was too good of an upgrade to just disappear. Yeah. And that's what is happening with money now. Uh-huh. So it, he hasn't been seen or heard from yeah, since, since like 2010, late 2010. Do you yeah. think he's dead? There's a lot of theories. I think, I'm not sure. I think it's hard to say. I would hope he's still alive. If he's still alive, he's got to be sitting on some serious cash. The, the early Bitcoin blocks that he mined, people watched very closely. And so if they ever moved, the price would definitely drop because there's about a million coins that were mined early on because he was one of the only miners early on because he was one of the only people on the network. And so he was making all those Bitcoin. That is the benefit to creating your own coin. I mean, it's like what happened with um, Vitalik. Is that yeah. say his name? Yeah. The, the, the creator of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. He's like the 10th richest person in the world. Yeah. It's a bit different with Ethereum because Ethereum did like a token, like a generation event 
where you were able to buy Bit or Ethereum with Bitcoin, and then they started mining. Whereas with Bitcoin, like I said, Satoshi announced it in late 2008. So like October, he announced it. And he's like, I'm going to be releasing this software. And it was all open. And so anyone could have downloaded it if they had known about it. Mm-hmm. And there was a mailing list that he was part of and posting on forums and different stuff. And so everyone had the opportunity to mine it. Whereas with Ethereum, you know, the developer essentially, all right, we're going to create this amount. We're going to keep this amount and so on. But the difference is also that Satoshi has never moved these coins in 11 years, hmm. despite the fact that they're worth billions of dollars now. They haven't moved at all and haven't been used in any way. Yeah, that doesn't look too good. Unless he just is independently wealthy and he doesn't need to worry about it. Yeah, it's the theory that he threw out the keys because like destroyed the private keys to those funds because it was just too much. Because early on, like I said, when no one was mining and it was just him, he was pretty much making all the block rewards of Bitcoin. And it wasn't worth anything back then. Yeah. And so he might have had the foresight to just destroy those keys because he knew that if they got into the wrong hands, it'd be a huge influence over the market. But I don't think those coins will ever move. I don't think they'll ever move. That's a disappointing thing to me is that in my mind, the goal of the whole thing is is to decentralize it, like what we talked about. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no corporate entity in charge of any of it. But if you have somebody holding a significant amount, they are capable of manipulating it. To an extent, because let's say he did move the coins and wanted to sell them, there would still be demand for them because the network still functions the way it does, the network in terms of um, security and settlement and be able to move funds from anywhere in the world without trusting a third party. The network still functions in that aspect. The fact that you know he mined a bunch in the beginning is just kind of part of a nascent technology. You know, you could say the same thing about someone who discovered a gold mine mm-hmm. out in the West. You know, when the gold rush happened, mm-hmm. gold still served its function as as an asset. But this guy was lucky enough to find him, you know, a big stash of gold. But he's an alchemist and he created the gold. Yeah, this is different where he was a literal genius and created something that people have been trying to create for decades and solved yeah. a, a computer science problem that has been around for decades. And so some would say that it's worth, it's very much deserved that wealth. Do you know what he did before? No, he, no he, one knows. No one knows? No, he just popped up on the cryptographic mailing lists, which is a mailing list kind of before forums came around and was still used even to this day, the mailing list is still used, and it's just a bunch of cryptographers, people who are into like mathematics and cryptography and using, uh-huh. and it kind of stems back into a concept of cypherpunks and crypto anarchy, which is the idea of using encryption and computer software in order to circumvent or surmount government influence or government control over mm-hmm. privacy and economics, and it's happening, it's, you know, it's now it's happening. And so what do you think the best possible outcome would be? Do you think if, I mean, would it benefit the world if Bitcoin was the only item of payment? What if everything else disappeared? I don't think it will just because what Bitcoin did was create a free market for money. It created a free market competition for money where there was other systems like um, Liberty Reserve. There was a few like people that were trying to issue new forms of money in the U.S., they all got raided by the Secret Service or the FBI because so it's illegal to mint you know, tender currency. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do it on a small scale, like locally in co-ops and like farmer's markets, but 
what Bitcoin did was pretty much open the floodgates for free market competition and money. And now it's not just who has, you know, government control or the central banks who have legal authority. It's now who can create an asset that is useful and has demand. Mm -hmm. And so Bitcoin is the most useful because of its security and because of its just the fact that it's the most well-known as well. There's a lot of, um, in terms of just perpetuating, I guess, just the mindshare of people knowing about it. Like not many people know about anything. You say Bitcoin, it's become like a household word. People, some people know about Ethereum. Not many people know about Monero. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know about Dogecoin because it's a big mindshare as well. Because it's on SNL. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of that goes into it. But in terms of like large scale, when you go below the surface, you know, Tesla's not buying Dogecoin; they're buying Bitcoin. Like, For how much he talks about it, you think they would? Yeah, but he knows that it's not a secure network. Like. And there's no liquidity there and there's no like... The interesting thing about it though is that it has the potential to to be equivalent to a dollar. Like most people think it won't go past a dollar, but they think it could hit a dollar. Yeah, It's at 34 cents right now or something like that. Mm. And people think it could go to a dollar and then it would be the equivalent of the US dollar. And you've got like Mark Cuban accepting it at, uh, I think it's the Dallas Mavericks that he owns. He's accepting it. Um, There was a a baseball team that I think started accepting it. Maybe, yeah. But what you're saying is that the, the the back end infrastructure does not support it to become anything. No, yeah. Because there hasn't been any developers working on it. So it's just mostly been a joke and a meme coin and mm-hmm. there may be more that join it but in terms of scaling and security it has the same problems as the other network where security is not as not as substantial as bitcoin the scalability is nowhere near because they have no solution to scaling the network whereas bitcoin the lightning network is like already substantially growing in a large way as a ton of developers working on a ton of interest in terms of just people tinkering with it and learning it and spreading it. And Strike is that company that's working with El Salvador. They use Lightning Network a lot as well, so mm-hmm. they'll be using that. Most of the transactions that happen in South Salvador will be over the Lightning Network mm-hmm. because in terms of like a currency, you don't use Bitcoin on the base layer. You use these other layers on top in order to like send small amounts. Bitcoin would act as like the settlement layer where let's say you and I do like a thousand transactions between each other. We can settle one transaction on the Bitcoin base layer. So all those 1,000 transactions can be just one payment on the Bitcoin base layer. Gotcha. And so having like buying your coffee and using the Bitcoin network just totally doesn't make sense. But using Lightning Network to buy 1,000 cups of coffee and then settling that on the base layer makes a lot more sense. So you're saying if it becomes more adopted and you go to Starbucks and you want to buy a $4 latte, Mm -hmm. you could use Bitcoin, but it would go through on the Lightning Network. That would be more efficient. Yeah. I mean, you could use base layer Bitcoin, but you're going to pay a high fee. You're going to pay more in fees than you are for the coffee. Yeah. With Lightning Network, you can do hundreds and thousands of transactions for a penny. And so it's just a way of scaling. And so you scale this transaction, then Bitcoin becomes a settlement layer. Kind of like how, you know, you use your credit card. You know, when you use your credit card at a gas station, that's not settled until like a month or two after. 
Yeah. Like on the back end with the banks. The banks make settlements only a few times a year. So it's kind of the same concept. Well, and I'm sure there's a bunch of fees associated with each one of those transactions too. And they must just eat them mm-hmm. because you don't get charged ex- extra. The merchant gets charged for it, right? Yeah. Sometimes the merchant pays on, you know, passes that fee on to like sometimes you see us oh, a $5 minimum or yeah. you, unless you pay $5 for the transaction. And also there's no protection from chargebacks. So I can go buy something at a, you know, gas station and then charge it back. Call my bank and said, oh, this was an illegal charge. Mm-hmm. Reverse the payment. With Bitcoin, you can't reverse payments like that. So hmm. it becomes much more secure to accept it as a form of payment than credit card or debit card as a merchant. Yeah, it's just wild to think about what it could be. Um, I've been reading some stuff lately about, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of companies doing it, but I was reading about Apple uh, trying to make it happen. Just instead of having passwords for everything, you just have one universal login. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's through... Um, iCloud, I imagine. Um, But I I just see something happening where, yeah, if you you use a fingerprint or face ID, you could allow all of those transactions with your phone, essentially. And if you have either Bitcoin linked to your bank account, you could pay with everything that way with your face Mm -hmm. and your phone. Your phone will essentially become like your wallet, yeah. your way of confirming who you yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's where it's moving. And then China's kind of already there with their social credit score. But what's kind of fighting against that are these decentralized cryptographic systems where you can prove who you are without having to give over your face or, you know, do your thumbprint or some kind of like thing that the government can just or corporations can just amass and get a huge database full and then sell it to other people like what's already happening and so yeah if you had every single transaction with gps data yeah. and your face and mm-hmm. oh man you're not gonna be able to do anything yeah you won't be able to you, you try to go pay with like a 20 dollar bill and they're like what's that yeah. we don't take that yeah if there were only central bank digital currencies then you know you would have to be almost have to get permission to use your money and even in China, they were talking about, I don't even know if it happened, but they were talking about having a, like an expiration date on money. Like you have to spend it by this certain amount of time. What? Yeah. And so. They could totally implement that if they want to. Oh, yeah. And in terms of fiat and like the way these systems are built, there's different schools of economics that kind of exist of, you know, ways of thinking of what's the best way to run an economy. And the predominant one in most of the world is known as Keynesian economics and mm-hmm. it kind of came after World War II and is the idea that, oh, you need to consume and spend money in order to keep a health economy healthy. And so that's why we have all these inflation and all these stimulus packages is to encourage spending. And in reality, this just encourages overconsumption and exploitation of the environment, destruction of the environment, because you have infinite amount of money and a finite amount of resources. Yeah. Whereas the other school, Austrian economics, which is what more Bitcoin and gold and these other systems kind of adhere to, is like, okay, it's more about saving. Like we, need, we should save money and you know for in the future in case there's hard times instead of spending it all now. And so these are the two systems that obviously Keynesian has been the predominant one, but now Austrian economics is becoming more. 
Well, that's the business influential. Of, that's the business of the world is selling you things that you don't need. Yeah. Right. The the weird thing is that most corporations base their success on positive year over year growth. Mm -hmm. You can't have positive growth every single quarter of every year. Yeah. That's unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes you think of the Lorax. Like you're just <laughs> constantly chopping down trees, man. Yeah, like exactly. there's not going to be trees at some point. How are yeah. you going to make stuff? Exactly. How are you going to make needs? Well, yeah, that's why they keep doing the bailouts and, you know, bank, especially with the banks where these banks are like making money year, like quarter after quarter. And then a few quarters they don't. And they're essentially about to go bankrupt. And like, oh, do you bail out? It's like, how could you run a business this profitable then almost go bankrupt? Because of one bad quarter. Or well, one. Yeah, like all the, the airlines yeah. when COVID hit. Yeah. Exactly. And so they're spending as much as the average consumer is and they're not being, but it's all kind of systemic in the system where the government's just, you know, has a huge amount of debt. They're spending more than they have. And it all is rooted in this idea that spending money or consuming is what makes the economy healthy. And it's yeah. completely backwards. Yeah. I mean, you really need. You need food and you need water mm -hmm. and you need, you need to be healthy. I mean, cause the healthcare system's pretty, pretty draining, but I mean, if people ate better and lived healthier lifestyles, they wouldn't be so unhealthy, but it's just, I don't know, man, I wish we had like 200 years of hindsight cause it's going to be way different. Yeah. This is this is some shit that people are going to read about in history books yeah. and just be like, what were they doing? <laughs> what were they doing, man? Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy. And I, I saw this awesome uh, meme on Reddit. Not a meme, but just like a cool little infographic thing. It's like it showed an image of um, the uh, Wright brothers oh, flying yeah. the airplane and then uh, Armstrong on the moon. Mm -hmm. And they're like – these two events were 66 years apart. Yeah. We couldn't fly an airplane. And within 66 years, we had a man on the moon. Yeah. And then you compare that to 69 to now. And it's like, you got this wild computer <laughs> in your pocket that you can search for any amount of information. Yeah. Um, you don't, we have no idea where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that essentially with these devices, it's a dimension that's being built in the digital world. And slowly it wants to come out into our world and we are slowly going into its world. So it's going to meet somewhere in the middle. Right. And that's happening in terms of like, even right now with like Neuralink and the, you know, what Elon Musk is doing with the brain interface chips. And, you know, it's starting out as like for people who are paraplegic or people who have neurological problems, but eventually it's going to be for people who want more power and people who want to learn like the matrix, you know, you just download information to your head yeah. or just hacking biology at this point mm -hmm. and directing our evolution. And Bitcoin, I think is kind of accelerating that in the sense where it's creating wealth in the hands of people who are more technologically savvy and more, you know, interested in creating these technologies that are beneficial to humans rather than just, you know, like, kind of the old world money that just wants to hoard it and wants to just perpetuate old systems like fossil fuels and all that. But it's 
it's essentially a wealth transfer for people who pass the litmus test of what hard money and what good money is. And the people that don't pass are unfortunately going to just continue to trust the government that have their best interest at heart. And, you know, time and time again, they've proven they don't. Mm-hmm. So. so you think this could be like one of the the greatest catalysts for like some sort of real change is mm-hmm. decentralized? Yeah, without Bitcoin, I'd be very pessimistic about the world. <laughs> but because of Bitcoin, I'm very optimistic. Yeah. Because otherwise, there's really no other. I mean, money, like I was saying, is just the fundamental tool to exchange time and energy between humans outside of barter. And, you know, barter works on a small scale in, like, small communities, but to build one of those, it's not going to get built with barter. You have to be able to create a system where you can forego, you know, doing work or work on something specialized, some kind of nascent thing to create that and then be able to use the money to offer or to, you know, take care of your other needs, your substantial needs. And, yeah, it's just getting to the point where, the money no longer served its purpose as a tool. It was just being manipulated to keep the powerful in power and keep the wealthy who are, you know, keep them wealthy. And that's the problem with trusting humans with the power to manage time and energy. Like the old saying that time is money is very true because it is a representation of the scarcest asset that exists, which is human time. Yeah. And it's kind of embodied in this, ele- in this electronic medium of exchanging value with each other. Well, it's electronic now, but, you know, it's gone through many iterations. And the point is that it's electronic now, and so it can move instantly around the world. You know, you can fund people, the whole uh, Kickstarter and, like, crowdsourcing stuff. That is a huge kind of evolution in the way we fund ideas, where you used to have to go to bank and get a loan or something, and now it can just fund anything, just crowd crowdfund. And Bitcoin is, again, going to allow that on an even higher level because you don't need an intermediary to like manage that money or whatever. So, Yeah, like when uh, the creators of Shiba sent $50 billion oh, yeah, to, to India. <laughs> no, they sent it to the, the creator of Ethereum oh, and yeah. he's like, nope, don't want it. And then he sent it to yeah, India. <laughs> exactly. And like uh, you couldn't even sell that if you wanted to because the market would just crash instantly. Yeah. Maybe you could sell like a little bit of it, but and also the market goes through these cycles of kind of like euphoria and you know, kind of exuberance. Whereas, you know, when you don't hear about crypto, it's usually in the bear market, like there's not much and all the projects are dying. If you go back to like twenty thirteen, the top ten crypto projects were completely different. They don't exist anymore. Nothing made it except Bitcoin. I mean, there's like Litecoin, and like that's about it. But even Litecoin doesn't really have a use case that will last much longer. I don't think. Yeah, what does Litecoin do? It's just pretty much a copy of Bitcoin that's a little has double the supply, and it's like a little bit faster in terms of blocks. But that's it, mm-hmm. and a different hashing algorithm. But it was just kind of a copy of Bitcoin, but it's not. It doesn't really serve a purpose. Yeah. Know? It's just kind of an interesting, it's like a lot like the dot-com bubble where it's just got a copycat type stuff. There's a lot of people trying to get in on it right now. Yeah, it just makes me wonder what what's going to happen um, in the next year because everything's so out of whack right now. The housing market, mm-hmm. uh, the inflation that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
things haven't settled since COVID mm-hmm. is over, supposedly. Um, and I don't know, something, something dramatic is going to happen. And I feel like everything's kind of tied to everything. So I feel like it's going to be bad for all aspects, including crypto. But I think it will weed out a lot of the, yeah. the people that are just trying to latch on, you know? Yeah. Or the coins that are trying to latch on to what's going on. Yeah, the the demand will become apparent of what is actually useful. And again, Bitcoin has made it through many of these cycles, you know, it kind of it made it through everything since two thousand eight and a lot of these other coins don't make it through one cycle. Yeah. But another analogy I like to use for money is that you can think of it as a measurement system. So money is a way to measure time and value. And then if you have an institution that is able to manipulate that measurement system or like a ruler. Let's say you're trying to build a house, but the ruler gets changed every time, you know, some of the contractor comes along and says, all right, today the ruler is this long, which is what they're doing with interest rates and central banking. And so when you have a measurement system where you can manipulate the ruler size, all the valuations become out of whack. And that's what's happening with a lot of markets right now. But something like Bitcoin comes along and the ruler is like, all right, this is the length of the ruler and it's never going to change. Everyone is able to work more cohesively off that measurement system. But it's still tied to everything. If the stock market goes down, Bitcoin goes down too. I mean, like when things crashed in In March March of 2020, everything crashed, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of worry about what was going to happen. Like, is the world ending? And so... But then again, you know, Bitcoin bounced right back. And also a lot of it was that people needed money. And, you know, if they had profits in crypto, they were able to sell it and then use that money to prop up, you know, their business or whatever they needed to. I mean, as time goes on, I think that volatility will be less. But again, it is all just humans behind these systems. And humans are emotional creatures. And so they are, a lot of it is connected. It's just what is... uh, what can stand the test of time. And that's really, you know, like a microcosm that crypto ecosystems have shown that, where, you know, Bitcoin has lasted and all like 99% of these other coins have not lasted. Mm-hmm. So. It's crazy to think about because you have these man-made structures like the pyramids and, you know, Stonehenge and these various things that were built out of rock that will last for millennia. And everything we do now is ones and zeros on hard drives. (laughs) And if everything just got blown up, whatever civilization that came around in a million years would have no proof of us. Yeah. Like all that stuff would just be gone. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be hard to pick up and like, you know, if it was all that data was wiped, it'd be very hard to start. You'd start from scratch print essentially, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Where a lot of books, you know, are lost, not even don't exist anymore. There are some digital backup. And so we're kind of playing this game of chicken with nature, hoping mm-hmm. that the sun doesn't release some, uh, <laughs> you know, EMP and destroy everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. I think that's a good spot to shut it down. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah.